So I'm excited to be here this morning and to be able to share with you a little bit about some of the values of our church. And there is this cool thing that Casey's put together. You can uh, text questions. And he told me that if you text questions this week, I get to be on his podcast. So, you know, so you can ask about, you can ask about the Bible, ask about, I mean, the Super Bowl coming up, uh, Lewis Hamilton driving for Ferrari, if anybody even cares about that. I care about that a lot. So, um, yeah, so anything you want, put, put that up there. This actually, I don't know if you've listened to, but these are really good. I have, I've enjoyed these quite a bit where uh, Casey's been able to dig in a little bit deeper to some of the questions that, that we've had. And this morning, like, uh, like you said, we're going to be looking at the covenant of our church, and we want this covenant, a peace, ba- uh, peace, peace Bible, not just to be words that are on file somewhere, but to really be the heartbeat of who we are. And so on that covenant, and there's a copy of it on the way out, that you are able to see that and to be able to see the things that we care about deeply. And the the item that we're going to be looking at, again, this is on the, the handout in the bulletin, is, I think it's the second one, but uh, here it is. In fact, if, if you would like, and if you're part of our church, let's go ahead and read this together. Uh, so this is the Peace Bible Church Covenant. We will walk together in Christian love, exercising affectionate care toward each other encouraging each other to forsake sin and pursue holiness. So love, true love, like I, I just have to say it, right? Um, there, was a, there was a great movie a long time ago. It's, it's, this is a, it was a black and white movie. It's back before they invented color, I think. Jimmy Stewart was in it. It was called Harvey. Anybody here ever seen Harvey? Great, great movie. Uh, so Jimmy Stewart plays this person named Elwood P. Dowd. It sounds like an old name. And, uh, and Elwood's this cool guy. He drinks a little too much. He's a little bit eccentric. But probably the most distinct things about Elwood is that he has a friend who is a six-foot invisible white rabbit. And so he is, he is confident that he has a six-foot invisible rabbit as a friend. And he talks to him, and, and of course his family, you can imagine, is very concerned. The pe- all the people around him, they, they arrange for him actually to be admitted into this kind of insane asylum because poor, poor Elwood, obviously, is, he's lost his marbles because he believes that he has a six-foot white rabbit as a friend named Harvey. And as the movie develops, something really amazing happens because Elwood is like the nicest guy you could ever hope to know. Everybody he meets, he says, oh, it is such a, I'm so glad to meet you. Here's my card, here's my phone number. If you ever need anything, call this number. I would love to meet up. Like, what are you doing this week? Like, let's get together for lunch or coffee because I want to know more about you. Tell me about anything, your problems. Call me up anytime, day or night, and I'm going to take care of it for you. And he, everybody, he's, he's like this way with everybody. And you realize after a while that, because Elwood is so amazingly nice and gracious and kind, you sort of want to believe in Harvey, <laughs> right? Because like, well, if he has this invisible friend and he is like this way in the world, maybe it's not that crazy to believe that there is this six-foot white invisible rabbit, right? And I think part of what this shows us is there's a principle there that kindness 
makes the unbelievable believable. Kindness can make the unbelievable believable. And this is actually a sort of a principle that Jesus says a long time ago, way before Harvey, way before black and white movies, is that at the, the very end when he's with his disciples, and we know the story, he, he washes their feet, he humbly does this, that, that he really should not be doing it at all, but he stoops down and he washes their feet and he cleans their feet. And he says, a new commandment I give to you, and, and it's basically this, that you need to love each other the same way that I loved you. And so what I just did for you, I washed your feet, I humbled myself to wash your feet, you need to do that for each other. And here's the thing, he says, people will know that you're my disciples by your love for each other. Now, it's interesting, he didn't say you're, you'll, they'll know you're my disciples by what you believe. They're, they'll know you're my disciples by what you wear, where you worship, that sort of thing. He says the thing that's going to make you more distinct than anything else in the world is your love for each other. Which means that if, if we don't get this right, like it, nothing else matters. It doesn't matter what you believe if you don't love each other. Because if you believe the right thing and you say the right thing and you sign the right thing and you, have, you be as orthodox as you want, but you don't have love for each other, the world has no idea who you are. And I don't know about you, but to me, this is like super frightening to, to, to come across this because I realize how often I do not live up to the standards that, that Jesus puts before us. And as I look at this, and I, I'm, I'm looking at these scriptures, especially the scripture we looked at today, I realize I have so far to go. And what I want to do is, is read this, this passage from Ephesians, and then give us three questions that you sort of self-diagnostic for each of us, because it's easy to say, Look, Peace Bible Church, as we're developing, you know, 10 years from now, what will make us distinct? What will mean that we're doing what we're supposed to be doing? And I think it really comes down to this. Are you loving each other so that the world will look and say, wow, I, I want to be a part of that? And so, but it's not, that's not like a message for all of us. It's a, major, it's a, it's a message for each of us. That this is a question that each one of us needs to be dedicated to answering in the right way. So let's look at this, Ephesians 4, 29, and again, this is on that, that handout if you want to look at that. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So I've got three questions, and this is sort of on the back of that, that handout. So these three questions that we can just diagnose ourselves. Diagnose ourselves. The first question is this. What do I talk about? The first question, what do I talk about? Or we could say, who do I talk about? 
In verses 29, you see this. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. That idea of corrupting, this is the same word that was used for like fruit that was rotten. And what happens if you have one rotten peach and you put it in the basket with all the other peaches? What's going to happen to the whole basket before too long? That, that corruption spreads, doesn't it? And we know that when we speak words, and we tend to think that, you know, talking about people maybe more than we talk to people, it's like, yeah, we're not supposed to do that, but it's sort of one of those mulligan sins. You know, when you when you're golf and you play and you get a mulligan, that's basically a shot that doesn't count, right? And we have those mulligan sins. You know, some of us, it might be a little gluttony, right? That'll never hurt anybody, right? But for a lot of us, this idea of gossip is one of those things that, well, we know we're not supposed to do it, but, you know, it, it doesn't really hurt anybody. And there are these five really dangerous words out there, just between you and me. You ever been in those situations? It's kind of just a couple people. It's just between you and me. Is it ever just between you and me? No, there's always, whatever the situation is, it's not just you and the other person. In fact, I, th I think this is why this verse, if you look at verse uh, 30, this is why verse 30 is here. And this is sort of a confusing verse. Why is this here? And so, in other words, when you're speaking, and this is where he says this, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And sometimes when we have these Holy Spirit passages, there's this, this idea of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. That's kind of a, a scary thing because we know that's pretty much the unforgivable sin. But this is something different. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, this isn't saying that this is a way of losing your salvation because you look at it because he wants to remind us, you were sealed for the day of redemption. You're not going to lose your salvation by whatever this grieving is. But I think what this grieving has to do, when you think about it, Jesus stands, if you were a believer, we know in Hebrews that Jesus is standing before the throne of the Father and he is advocating for you. He is praying for you. He's mediating for you. If you are a believer, he's mediating for you before the Father. He's advocating. But we also know a reality that if you're a Christian, there's another force there. There's the enemy. There's Satan. And what is he doing? He's accusing. And so, I, this, I don't know if this is disrespectful, but I just sort of have this idea of, of when two people are talking and a name of somebody comes up. And you have this choice, because you know something about this person that you could bring up and it would be sort of interesting to talk about this person and, and it wouldn't really maybe be the most uplifting thing, but I could see the Holy Spirit, like, oh, they're about to talk about this person. And I know that right now, Jesus is standing before the throne advocating for this person, regardless who they are. I mean, they could be the, you know, just kind of a complete moron or whatever, but Jesus doesn't care. He loves you and he's going to advocate for you. And the Holy Spirit's job is to glorify Jesus. And so he wants to glorify what Jesus is doing. And so you can see at this moment, it's like this moment of decision. We're talking about this person and the Holy Spirit's waiting. Are they going to advocate for this person? Are they going to build this person up? Or are they going to take the enemy's side and accuse this person? 
And it's so easy. In fact, sometimes it's more fun to accuse the person and say negative things about the person and build, you know, and not build them up, but say things that you know that, that make you feel better because it shows how you're much better you are. And I think when we choose that side of, of accusing, it grieves the Holy Spirit because like, oh man, you just missed an opportunity because right now Jesus is advocating for this person and you miss that opportunity to do it. And so our words especially when we're talking about other people, it is so important. And it's so important, especially if you are a leader of some kind, if you're a parent, a teacher, if you supervise people. Like one of probably, one of the most fundamental laws of leadership, you can never criticize your people. You can never criticize your people. Jesus says leadership is about service. Simon Sinek, who who's a, writes about business stuff, he says, leadership is not about being in charge. It's about taking care of those in your charge. Leadership is all about taking care of people so they can trust you, so they're able to say, okay, this person has my back. And you can never criticize them in front of anybody. And you might say, well, I mean, you don't know the people who I have to lead. You don't know my class. You don't know my kids. You don't know the people I work for. I mean, they're a bunch of knuckleheads, right? They probably are a bunch of knuckleheads. You're probably a knucklehead too. What's Paul say? I am the chief of all knuckleheads or something? So, I mean, they, they probably are. They're probably a bunch of knuckleheads. But what I'm saying is not that you cannot acknowledge that they're a knucklehead or that you can't grieve over the fact that they're a knucklehead or you can't try to, you know, help lead them out of their knuckleheadness, if that's even a word. But you are not allowed to admit to anybody that they are knucklehead. <laughs> you are there to protect them. You are there to stand up for them. You are there to advocate for them. Why? Because that's really what Jesus has done for us. And that's why it's so important that this verse isn't just something that we look at and go, oh yeah, you know, if, 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 if we feel like not saying bad things about people, we won't. It is corrupting. In the, in the Old Testament, the word for word is debar. And the thing about that word is it, is, it actually has physical weight. They, in the Hebrew language, they saw a word as being like a physical thing, like a brick or something that you could hold and it has weight to it. This is why when Isaac, remember the story, uh, Jacob uh, fools his father. He, he pretends he's somebody, that he's Esau. And Isaac blesses Jacob instead of Esau. And you look at that and say, well, that's, a, you know, that's kind of a bummer. And once Isaac realizes that he was fooled, and Esau comes and says, what did you do? He says, oh, I gave the blessing to your brother. And I always, I always read that and say, well, can't you just say, well, never, do over. I take that back. Forget what I just said. Now I'm going to bless the right person. But you can't do that because those words... Are, have physical weight to them. Once you have spoken them, they're out there, and you cannot bring them back. And we need to remember that, that the words that we say, especially about other people, those live. In fact, in, in, uh, in Matthew 12, Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. So there is no such thing as an idle word that you just say it and that it just floats off into space. 
Every word you are going to be called into account for. And the people that you say them about, maybe they're sitting there. But it's so easy, isn't it? And so the first question that, that I think we have to ask is, what do I talk about? And, and as a church family, this is something that, that we cannot compromise on it. There is no way to say, oh, we're working on this. We cannot let corrupting speech, especially about each other, come in at all, anywhere. The second question, uh, and this is found in verse 31. What do I think about? So the first question, what do I talk about? Second question, what do I think about? Look at verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Let all bitterness, wrath, and anger. Now those, it, this, there is a certain sort of building up to these, to these words and these ideas, especially the first three, bitterness, wrath, and anger. These are all internalized. Bitterness is this idea, especially when somebody maybe says something to you, somebody does something to you, and you don't lash out, you don't even say anything about it, but it's a seed that is planted. And those, that bitterness, when it happens, is, takes root and it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And for a lot of us, these, are, these, this, these bitterness, these seeds of bitterness have been planted years and years ago. It could just be one thing that somebody said to you. It could be something somebody did to you that they don't even know that they did. But it was hurtful to you, the way it was said, the, the situation, and it becomes this bitterness inside of you. And it grows. And, it talk, and so he says here, let, um, let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander. Is this in clamor? Like have, we don't use that word very much, do we? Clamor. But clamor is, a, is an idea. We don't use that word, but we see it constantly. Clamor is a, a picture of somebody who is angry and shouting as loud as he can because he wants everybody to know how angry he is. And this word was invented before Facebook. That's kind of <laughs> cool, isn't it? But we see that constantly, don't we? It's, it's, it's that people like, I, I have been, I've been hurt. I'm angry about whatever this thing is. And I just want to scream so that everybody hears. It's not going to solve anything, but I just want to be loud enough so everybody can hear me. Does that do any good? No. And we see the next, and, and once you clamor, once you speak out, slander. What is slander? Well, it's the same idea. It's, a, it's speech that is designed to hurt somebody. And a lot of times, this is just a very natural progression. It's kind of like gravity. You, you drop something and it falls. And there is this natural thing inside of us because it's not that even we have evil intent, but it's that other people maybe had evil intent for us or that they let things happen or, or we're victims of things that have happened to us years and years ago. And the natural progression is because we were victims of something. We were hurt and we want to hurt back because we believe in karma, right? It's like, it's, it's like if somebody does something bad, something bad should be done to them. 
And it's just this natural progression. And maybe something bad was done to you and this bitterness is taking root. Or maybe somebody does something and you are a mind reader or you think you're a mind reader and you know why they did this. Anybody here really good at mind reading? Like, I know why they did that. They did this because of this, this, and this. And it really helps because it shows how horrible those people are. And they are going to get what's coming to them, or they should anyway. If there's a God and if there's justice, they're going to get it because they did it these way, this way. And we have, and, and it's interesting, like I think I mentioned this before, is that, that psychologists have found that for each of us, we each have like thousands of thoughts every day. Just thoughts about random things coming through our minds. And that a majority of those are negative. And so our default basis for almost everything that comes to us is to tell a negative story. Something happened, that guy did it because this, they're a jerk or whatever. This happened because I'm not good enough. This happened because I really deserved it. And we, our default again is to just kind of tell these negative stories over and over and over again. And we we hear these things, people say things to us, we get these inside of us. And the, there was a great book, I think I mentioned this before, it's, it's a book called Forgive for Good. Forgive for Good, it's written by this guy, he was, he's, wasn't even a Christian, but he was a, uh, a psychologist and he wanted to know if forgiveness is really a good thing or not. And he did all these studies, actually spent millions of dollars, got these grants, and he did these studies and he found, and this is kind of surprising, he found that people who are able to forgive are actually much happier and healthier in life. Like the Bible says that, I think, somewhere. And so he found this, and, and this book is really good because he talks about, for most of us, it is so hard to forgive somebody. And it is hard because we have been victims of something. Like people have said things to us or they've done things to us and he says what happens to that is, is a grudge. We hold grudges. He says a grudge happens when something bad happens to us and then we spend too much time thinking about it. Which again is, is really natural, isn't it? If something happens to you, it's just in your mind. You cannot get, a, get away from it. Like a, a number of years ago, we were, Terry and I were, in a, were driving and we got in a car accident and it was like my fault, and a guy got injured and had to be taken away from the hospital in, in an ambulance. And I don't know if you guys have ever been in something traumatic like that, but honestly, for probably up to the month, every time I closed my eyes, guess what I saw? That actor is replaying over and over and over again. And some of us have been, we've experienced things in our life, like really young even. And those things get in our minds, but those become grudges, they become bitterness when we dwell on them, when we let those take root and that's just all we're focused on. And it's interesting, even in this book, he says that the way to remove the grudge, the bitterness, one of the best ways to do this is gratitude. Because gratitude and grudges cannot live in the same place. And so if you, what we do is we find ourselves focused on this thing that happened to us but the more we can replace that with gratitude, the less that bitterness takes root and the less the chance that that bitterness is going to, to flare up into anger and then flare up into, into slander and then malice, just wanting to hurt somebody. 
And again, some of us have been victims of things. It wasn't your fault, you didn't ask for it, but it just happened to you. And I don't know if you're like me, but part of when you become a victim of something, you, you fantasize about, wow, we just need justice. This person needs to be like found out. And, and you just sort of fantasize about that. And I love this verse in 1 Peter 2.23. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. And here's the key. But continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. Isn't that amazing? So if you are a victim of something and you're like, okay, I, just, I can't wait for this person to get, get what's coming to them. It says what Jesus did in those situations more than anybody else, he's able to say, Father, you are the judge. You are the judge who's going to bring this all into account in the right time, and I'm entrusting this to you. And for some of us here this morning, probably the most profound thing that we could do is those, the hurts that have happened to us, the things that we are carrying, is to make two decisions to, to, to move forward. One is, I know this thing is living inside of me and I can't get it out of my head. Replace that with gratitude. Use, what are you thankful for? What has God given to you? What, what are the good things in your life? And you find the more you focus on that, the less available headroom you have, bandwidth, to focus on those negative. And maybe some of us, there's things, again, that have happened to us that you just need to give this to God and say, you know what, this is beyond my control. I'm, I'm carrying way too much burden with this, and I need to hand it to you, God, because I know that you are the perfect judge who will, in the right time, bring everything right, and I do not have to be in charge of this anymore. Some of us, that might be the most freeing thing you can do. So, what do I think about, or what do I talk about, number one? What do I think about, number two? And the third question, how do I treat people? How do I treat people? Look at verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Be tender-hearted to others. Uh, one of the best pieces of parenting advice Terry and I got when we became parents, I can't remember who said it, but someone told us, children need love most when they deserve it the least. <laughs> That's true for all of us, isn't it? People need love the most when they deserve it the least. And we've all been in those situations, and we know that that, what that feels like. And the thing is, you cannot be tender-hearted while you are harvesting this root of bitterness inside of us. Tender, I've, I've told this story before, but this was, for me, one of the clearest pictures of tender-hearted. When I was going to school uh, in, in Fort Worth, Texas, I was at seminary, and one of my one of my main teachers was this man, Dr. Leo Garrett. And in, in the world of kind of Southern Baptist, Dr. Garrett was kind of the, the top of the, he had written the books about it. He had actually known Karl Barth. He had been at Vatican II, the big Catholic uh, ecumenical council. He was called in as like a Protestant advisor to talk. So, I mean, this guy was connected, connected, connected. And I was taking a class from him. And one day, we had a quiz that day, and I was really nervous about the quiz, and I was ready for him to, to cover all the stuff he was so we can get the quiz going. 
And he would always start class with saying, are there any prayer requests? And, and uh, you know, people would have prayer requests. And he's, he's asked that, are there prayer requests? And I'm, I'm like, okay, I hope nobody realizes any prayer requests because I've got a lot of stuff here and I'm going through my notes, getting it ready. And this kid, this guy in the back, he's, he's talking about a prayer request. I don't know what it was. His uncle had cancer or something. Like, what is that? Like, I don't know. I'm, I've got a quiz today. Uncle with cancer, whatever. And he's, and this student's going on and on about, about this. And I'm thinking, oh, we got to, come on, let's go. We got to, we got to get going with class. And he's going on and on. I look up at Dr. Garrett and there's this tear just coming down his face. And he doesn't know this student. But Dr. Garrett says, Jason, that's got to be one of the hardest things I can imagine you're going through. And I'm so sorry about that. And I, even after that, like, he would ask him about this. I'm like, this person has no idea who this even is, and yet he's tenderhearted enough to care. And that's a picture of what we have to have for each other, is it's not just how you're doing, but I want to stop and I want to listen to how you're doing, because this is, if it's important to you, it needs to be important to all of us. There was in, in, and it says in here, be tenderhearted, forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. How did God in Christ forgive us? Well, in Romans it says, while you were still sinning, before you had any idea that you even needed forgiveness, Jesus was providing that forgiveness for us. A lot of times we think, well, I'll forgive once this person is crawling on their knees and they're so sorry for what they did, then I'll kind of think about forgiving. What's it say? So, no, no, no. You forgive. You be willing to forgive and give this up even before this person knows how much they have hurt you. And that is, that is supernatural. That, that, that almost, well, it can't be done on our own. We have to have power above ourselves, beyond ourselves, to even do this. There was this, uh, I've recently heard about this story, um, this woman named Ayan Hirsi Ali. She is, uh, she's from Somalia. She was, she was in Somalia when the Muslim Brotherhood took over, and they, basically, the way they treated her was horrible. There was uh, genital, mu- genital mutilation, which happens in some of these Muslim communities, they had set her up to be married by, to this older man, and she ended up escaping, and she went, to, um, she went to Europe, and she actually got an education. She became part of the Dutch parliament. She became a successful writer, and because of the way she had been, she understood God through the Muslims that had completely tormented and abused her, she became an atheist. And she was one of the leading new atheists, like with Sam Harris and, uh, and Dawkins and those guys. And she, was, she, would be, she would talk to people about how there can't be a God because of all this evil, because the way of treat, people treat each other in the name of religion. And it was sometime last year, and this just recently happened, and she said that she was going through such a dark time because she, even though she was successful, She's written books, she had done everything, and she was, she was a success. And yet there was something internally that she couldn't get over, and she was self-medicating, she was drinking heavily, she was falling apart, she was, it, was, it was as bad as it could get. And she was talking to someone, and this, this person told her, says, you have a spiritual problem. It's a spiritual problem. 
And she says, well, what am I, what, that, if, if I have a spiritual problem, that means I have to look to God. And I hate God because of the way he treated me. And this person said, well, just think about this. Here's an experiment. Come up with what would a God look like that you could worship, a God that you could give your life to. And so she said, okay, so she went off and she spent time writing out what this God would look like. He would have to be caring. He would have to be loving. And she said after she did this and she looked at what she wanted in a God, said that was Jesus Christ. <laughs> she looked at it and said, this was Jesus, exactly who I was looking for. And she became a Christian because somebody was willing to say, no, there is truth, but there's also, I understand that you've been hurt deeply and you need someone to step in for you and you need someone to give you new life. And she said it's, it's hard because she, she now has higher expectations for her life, but she also has grace. She also has somebody who loves her. In, um, in, in Luke 6.35, and I, I love what this says, love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to be repaid, then your reward from heaven will be very great, and you will truly be acting as children of the Most High. For he is kind to who? <laughs> He's kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. I don't want to be kind to somebody who's ungrateful because they should be able to thank me for what I did. But he says, no, he's kind to those who are, who are ungrateful, unthankful, and evil and wicked. And we need to be the same because we were those people. We have been unthankful. We have been evil. And yet he loves us. He came down and showed us grace and mercy. There was this really interesting, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote this, this, it was actually a sermon that he gave, like in 1941. And it went off, and it, it's now sort of one of his most famous essays called The Weight of Glory. And in this essay, it, it's amazing because what he does, he, he does a number of things, but just kind of in a nutshell, he says, you'll, you'll notice that, that we have these sort of desires that, that all of us have. And, and we have these desires because they're there to keep us alive. Like we, we have a desire to eat. We get hungry. And so that means that we can go get food and then we can go on with life. Or we're thirsty. Like that is a desire that we have. And that desire makes us drink and then we're able to live. There's, there's a desire for sex, and that means that people can propagate the species, right? And he says, so there's, there's all these desires that we have inside of us. But he said, there's a desire, and, and what he does here is absolutely brilliant because says, there's a desire inside each one of us to be valued, to be heard, to be loved, right? Like we all have this desire that we want to belong. We have a desire that we want to be part of something that, that is bigger than us and that we can just be ourselves and be comfortable with who we are and we belong to this. He says, that's a desire. And, and he, he, he says in this, he says, this is actually sort of a desire for glory, which is hard to imagine because when we think of glory, we think of you know, somebody who's egotistical, narcissistic, um, and, and all those kind of things. Says, well, I don't want to be that. But he says, no, there's a kind of glory that is actually virtuous. And, and this, is a, this is part of what he says in here. Um, 
He says the promise of glory is the promise almost, um, in, almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ. That some of us, that any of us who really chooses shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, and shall please God. Because what Jesus says that if you will confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. And when he says, this is, this is the person who confessed me before men, and he says, Father, I am now confessing him before you. And he says, when that happens, you are pleasing God. Because he sees you through Jesus Christ, who he loves, and he says, my son, well, I'm well pleased. And Lewis says, actually, when you are in that stance and, and Jesus Christ is saying, this is mine, the Father looks and he says, I approve of you. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Back to what it says. To please God. Can you imagine that? To please God? To be a real ingredient in the divine happiness. To be loved by God. Not merely pitied, but delighted in, as an artist delights in his work or a son. It seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. And we all have that desire to be glorified. And glorified seems weird. But we want to be appreciated and loved and heard and valued by somebody. I think the greatest picture of this, if you ever had a dog, you know, dog is God backwards, right? I, I, I think that means something. If you ever had a dog, and you think about it, like, you could, you'd be a complete jerk. You, you messed up that morning. You told your wife you're going to take the garbage out and do blah, blah, whatever. You forgot to do it. She's mad at you. The, the kids, you were going to do something for them. You didn't do it. They're mad at you. You go to work. The boss is mad at you because you, you messed something up. The customers are mad at you. You're driving home. You pull in front of somebody, and they're mad at you. Everybody's mad at you. You, like, have done the worst thing in the world. You open that door. <laughs> what is the dog? Does the dog, like, say, okay, what did you do today? Were you a jerk to everybody else? Anybody value you? What's the dog do? The tail is wagging. You are the greatest thing. You just completely loved and appreciated and if, if you've never had a dog just buy a dog for that experience you go home and it's like ah and what's happening the and it and when you look at somebody and if you enjoy that if you actually like oh this is great i you thank you buddy because i know i am a complete loser but you are fortunate you're not smart enough to know that and so you will just love me and that feeling of saying oh somebody in this world appreciates me we look at them like that's not evil that i mean that's not conceited that's not that's not bad. That's actually a really good thing to receive that. And what Lewis is saying is imagine that not a dog coming at you, but at the end of your life, because you have said, I confess Jesus before the world, what you are going to receive is the creator of the universe saying, well done. I am so glad you're here. He says, this is the weight of glory. But here's the thing. He says at the end of it, he says, but Okay, that's, that's a great thought. That's wonderful. That's awesome. What's the application of that? Look what he says here. This is the bottom. <clears throat> it may be possible for each of us to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. 
the load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. Now, what he's saying here is that for each of us, we need a taste of what that's going to be like when the Father says, well done, my good and faithful servant. And it's my job. That, that weight of glory is on me. And my way, the, my way to glory is on you. Because we, especially in a church, need to remind each other, this is what it feels like to belong. This is what it feels like to be heard. This is what it feels like to be seen. And it's going to happen here among believers. It's going to happen among Christians. And we are responsible for each other, for giving us a taste. Yeah, you may, you may have messed stuff up, but you, you're headed towards unaccepted love and acceptance. And this is what we need to do for each other, to give ourselves just a flavor, a taste of what that is like. Athenagoras was a church father from a long time ago, like the second century, and he became a Christian. And he was like, he was like a lawyer, philosopher, like super, super smart guy. And he wanted to tell his friends about the Christian faith. And he, he said, you know what, I could, I could give you philosophical reasons on why the Trinity makes sense. I could give you all these reasons and, and it would be really impressive. And, and I could do that. He says, but the best reason I know for showing that God is real, that Jesus is real, that he loves you. He says, look at the church. <laughs> it's like those people love each other. It's like there, there, are, there are people who are widows, and in those, those days, widows just were real trouble. They, they actually care for the widows. They take care of them. There are children who've been left by the side of the road to die, and those people take those kids and they raise them and they educate them and they clothe them and they feed them. So he says the only like, yes, there's a lot of reasons to believe that God is real and Jesus is real and he loves you and you need to give your life to him. But he says the best reason I can give is just look at the church. Just watch what those people do. And that is the reason why we can believe. That's what we're called to. We're called to be that when people say, yeah, I'm not really sure about this God thing. People are going to say, you know, there's this group of people that meet in this weird cold gym. <laughs> and you just go hang out with them for a while. And it's just like, it doesn't make any sense because they accept each other. Like, they know where they've been. They know what they've gone through. And you listen to the way they talk about each other, and they, they honor each other in the way they talk about each other. They're not gossiping. They're not backbiting. They're, they're encouraging of each other. And the only way that can happen is not because they're great people, because they're not. They're a bunch of knuckleheads too. The only reason that happens is because they've been changed. They've been accepted. They've been valued. They've been listened to. And they know that the Father, like the creator of the universe, is one day going to welcome them and say, well done. Don't you want to be a part of that? And we, like that is, that's, that's our, that's what's, it's up to us. Like, you know, Paul says, if, if, I, if I just do this great stuff, if I'm wonderful, but I don't have love, it is worth nothing. I can say great things, but if I don't have love, it's like a banging cymbal. It's like someone walks up to you and says, oh, do you have the time? What time is it? You pull out these cymbals from a marching band, just smash it in their face. Like, Dude, what's up with you? Like, that's what it's like not having love. So our call, how, how do we talk, what do we talk about? Especially when we're talking about each other. 
have to remember those words live forever. They're either corrupting or they're building up. What are we thinking about? Are we able to take that bitterness, those things that have happened to us? We find gratitude. Are we able to give it to God? He's the judge. And then how are we treating each other? Are we treating each other the same way that we've been treated by God? Are we able to do this, not when somebody deserves to be forgiven, but even before they know that they need to be forgiven? We're going to close with a song. We're doing a little bit different. We're going to have a song and invite the team up. And I just want us to use this time as a reflection time because these this for me is like so hard because I am preaching to myself and there is so much of this I need to get right. And so we're going to sing the song together in worship and then we're going to take the Lord's table together. But I just want to invite you during this time, don't even need to stand, you can, we can just sit. I think we can worship and sit at the same time. But I encourage you just, if you don't even need to, if you don't even want to sing the words, you just want to listen, use this time as prayer and give this to God and say, God, I... I, I need to work on this. I need your help. Help me with this. And use this time as a time to dedicate yourself to God.